Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your host of Nonprofit on the Rocks and co-founder of Envision Consulting, which is a national search and strategy firm only for nonprofits in the country. And with us as always is Ashley Watterson, our producer that's been off for the last like eight months and we're finally starting season five. Where have you been sleeping? <laughs> on the job? Mm. I'm glad you fell for that question because I just need you to know something. Like, I know we did a happy and I know that we started season five with like a little sneak peek kind of teaser, but like, I need you to know that I have had people come up to me and talk about the show and how much they miss it, which I don't know if they just want a job because I'm a recruiter or they mean it, <laughs> but like, that's a big deal, Ashley. I mean, even if they're only telling it to you for the purpose of getting a job, it's still nice to hear. No, that is a huge deal, Matt. That's awesome. But what have we said? If just one person can take away something and it helps them in their life and in their career, then it's all worth it. No, no, I disagree with that statement. If it's one of you out there who's getting something out of this, I don't know. Like, come on, dude. Let me have like two listeners. Is that okay, Ashley? Can we have two? You're right. It does seem like one is a very low bar. Let us rephrase that. If just two people out there are getting something out of this, then it's worth it. Yeah. Let's get it out there. Let's get some people to like pay attention to this. Maybe we can get somebody a job or I don't know, a laugh. So before we go into this episode, which I'm so excited about, my question to you is, how is pickleball? Pickleball is amazing. So anyone out there who's just joining us and doesn't know when I'm not producing this fantastic podcast. I am usually on a pickleball court. And, and here's the thing, Matt, pickleball is exploding. When we first started this podcast in 2020, I think you even said to me like, what, what the hell is pickleball? Like, what kind of a name is that? Is this really a sport? What, what are you doing? Now, and that was sort of a general consensus. Now it's well known to be the fastest growing sport in America. It's, it's everywhere. Everyone knows about it. But now it's become controversial. Oh, get this, Matt. You want a little pickleball goss? I just heard this this week. A Memorial Park in Santa Monica has tennis courts and pickleball courts. And apparently there's a riff. Like for those of you who are Broadway fans, like Sharks versus Jets, West Side Story style, there is a real time riff between the pickleball players and the tennis players. And apparently, and I'm hearing this secondhand, but apparently someone set fire to the shed that contained all of the pickleball nets and demo paddles and everything. Arson, Matt. This is how seriously people are taking it. It's no longer just, oh, noise complaints about pickleball because it does kind of make that loud thwacking sound. Now it's literally tennis enthusiasts setting fire. And I shouldn't accuse the tennis people. Maybe it was something random, but people setting fire to the pickleball gear. So allegedly a tennis player fan or player has set fire to a pickleball housing. Like a shed. Yeah, with all the, the gear. I'm going to tell you something. I am eating this up. If that actually is true, like I love it. I love it so much because personally, you know how I feel about sports. So I think any kind of rivalry we can have where it gets that real, I'm in. I'm you like all the drama surrounding it. Ooh, actually, Matt, transition for a second to the other hot topic as it is sports related and yet bringing in people who are not sports fans, but are music fans. Do you have thoughts about Tay-Tay? And Travis Kelsey. I'm still so confused about the whole thing. I read a little bit about it. I don't get it. 
before, <laughs> people are happy about it. I'm team Taylor all day long, so she can do no wrong. Of course, for me, it's amazing because I am a Taylor Swift fan. I wouldn't call myself a Swifty, but I certainly like her, like her music, watched her documentary, think she's awesome as a role model for girls and just like how she's taking the music world by storm. And then I'm a Chiefs fan to boot. So of course I love Travis Kelsey. In fact, I posted to Facebook that I am having a crisis of conscience because I, I left Twitter because of Elon Musk. And I find myself wanting to be pulled back in just so I don't miss any of the trailer, as we're calling it, Travis and Taylor news. Interesting. I will tell you something. I didn't know that Taylor Swift had a documentary. And if anybody's listening, I watched the Dolly Parton documentary. Mm-hmm. And I would watch that. Holy crap, she's amazing. Dolly Parton is a legend. And man, how amazing would it be, Matt? We used to talk about our dream scenario, having Oprah on our podcast. Having Dolly for all that she's done and her foundations and and her advocacy for children's literacy. I mean, she helped get the COVID vaccine (laughs) created. She's unbelievable. Okay, okay. If you can get Dolly to just be on this show, even for a minute, not only would I D-I-E, I, my head would, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> Even if we only have one listener and you know who you are, one listener to this show, if we can get Dolly on the show, that is worth every single minute and every single quarter that we've paid you for everything. That's it. Okay. Well, listeners, you've heard it from Matt that the gauntlet has been thrown. So anyone who has Dolly Parton connections out there, your sister's ex-boyfriend's niece once knew the housekeeper for like whatever it is people I need you to help me get that inroad to Dolly because I need job security folks and Matt has just guaranteed me lifelong job security that's what I heard from that I would never ever accuse you of being a mediocre producer ever again if you could get Dolly on the show oh forget money I, I just gained status mm. and that's worth everything. Mm. This is what I love about our relationship and this show that just in the span of us talking over these few minutes, we have gone from pickleball to talking about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift to now getting to Dolly Parton. I mean, we really do cover the gamut on this show. I'm telling you, I don't know why we're not more popular. <laughs> I think it's whoever's doing the marketing for this show. Oh, wait, that's me. So to just let our listener not have to fast forward through us anymore, this is our very first show under our very new format for season five, which is very exciting. And I'm beyond excited to have Mary Jane Wagley on this premiere episode of season five, where we talk all about founders and founder syndrome and how she co-founded her own nonprofit. And honestly, if you're an executive director under a founder, if you're an employee under a founder, if you're a board member with a founder, how you can deal with that. So I think this is a really cool episode. We've ha- we actually had real questions sent in. And if you actually do listen to this podcast and you fast forward to the end to listen to me and Ashley, at the end, we will talk about the topic for episode two. It's interesting that we started this conversation talking about two powerful female icons in Taylor Swift and Dolly Parton and how awesome they are and what they've done for women. Now we get to really put in that same pantheon, Mary Jane. She truly is an extraordinary individual who has spent a lifetime championing women 
and women's reproductive health and how the unhoused and education, like pretty much anything that, that matters to anyone, she has been at the forefront of advocacy and she's awesome. So before we let our listener in, is there anything else, Ashley, that you would like to share? We'll say it again at the end of the show, but it's always bears repeating. We need your questions, your feedback, and you can find us at envisionnonprofit.com. You can also find us on Instagram. Matt loves to make fun of the underscores, but it's nonprofit underscore on underscore the underscore rocks. Now enjoy this episode with Mary Jane Wagley. I am so excited that our first guest for season five is Mary Jane Wagley, and she is the founder of an organization called Works, which we love here at this organization, and we'll find out much more about it and much more about Mary Jane's story. But before we start, my friend, what are you drinking tonight on Nonprofit on the Rocks? Well, I have a little lovely Chianti Classico, which is one of my favorite easy wines. And I'm delighted to sip it as we talk. Oh, it does sound really good. But as we continue to drink in this show, we continue to have a much more honest conversation, which I love and I get myself in trouble. And I am drinking, as I always do, a little bit of lovely bourbon. This show has been on hiatus for months and months. And I blame Ashley for all of that. And I'm a little bit rusty. So you're going to have to like keep me on track if you don't mind, Mary Jane. So you started an organization that's a really great organization. And so I'd love it if maybe you told our listener about what works was started to do and why you decided that you needed to start an organization. Work stands for Women Organizing Resources, Knowledge and Services, short form works. And we did it because we wanted to be able to build affordable housing for low-income families and individuals that really respected the aspirations of the people we were trying to serve, and particularly focused on the needs of women and children, just as well as those who are economically challenged. I am very much a co-founder and not an only founder. And Works was started in 1998 by really five women it was time for a women's development organization to get into the market. We could do this work. We'd all been involved in it in various ways. One of us was an architect, one was a contractor, and two of us were kind of financial uh, project management people. So we started one company, a for-profit organization, and found that because we really wanted to make sure that the rents were targeted deeply for really low-income people, that we provided beautiful surroundings, that we provided services along with those surroundings, that we couldn't do that as a for-profit provider. We needed to have access to more sources of funding like nonprofit foundation money. And so we decided to convert to being a nonprofit. And so that's what we did in 1998. And my major co-founder for works was a woman named Chana Grace, who is an, an amazing woman who really led the organization for about 25 years. And I was the CFO. Not that I have any CFO experience, but you know, I picked it up as I went along. <laughs> and the organization to date 
has developed about 26 affordable housing properties. We did a little in Oregon, but mostly in Los Angeles County and continue to maintain and operate those properties and develop about a new one every year or two. I have so many questions about this, but uh, I'm always really impressed by leaders who sort of like, you know, they, they go over the hard stuff. Like, yeah, you started a for-profit, then you turn it into a nonprofit, but probably didn't know what that meant. And then like all of a sudden, here you are with all these housing developments, but we've now passed over all the hard stuff. And so first of all, thank you for doing it because you saw a need and you decided we're going to fix this need. I guess that's my first question. Why? Why did you decide that you wanted to devote your time and your energy to fixing that need? You know, I think all of us, but certainly me personally, have always felt that justice needs to be served in our world. And it is not a just world. And it is not fair that some kids grow up in poverty. It is not fair that some women and some men struggle with just trying to keep a roof over their heads. At that time, when we started, there was not nearly the the number of unhoused people that there are today. It's just grown over time. And so the the need that we saw, which we were only able to fill a tiny part of, has just become a a, a landslide. I studied urban planning. My uh, senior project out of uh, school was to design uh, an affordable housing project designed for um, single parents who had kids to take care of and had to work. And I, I just really loved the experience of envisioning something, making it happen, and seeing that people really got to go live there and improve their lives. I really honestly think that's what's so great about nonprofit, that I do think things might be a little bit more complicated. Maybe the pay is not as it would be in for-profit, but you are doing things that mean something and are special. And I do think that that's what sets us apart. No question. Even when you just want to like throw your board into the ocean, it is still (laughs) worth it. So I've talked about this before, you know, the, the reason I'm a nonprofit is because my grandmother taught me about the importance of nonprofit, the importance of fundraising as well, actually, as a kid. So that's kind of why I was always meant to do this. Was there something in your childhood, something from a family member that kind of inspired you to take this journey? You know, my my parents, who in many ways are quite different from me, but nevertheless, incredible role models, they were always very civic minded. They cared about their communities and invested a lot of their time in helping their communities. I grew up in a tiny town in Wisconsin, and my father was a member of the school board. My mother started a nursery school, raised money for a YWCA. They were always very civically oriented. I certainly took from them the importance of engaging in your community and trying to make it a better place. And I think maybe some of the commitment to justice came from my childhood experiences, feeling that everything wasn't fair for everybody. There were kids who had challenges I didn't have to face, and it, it didn't seem fair to me. You know, Wisconsin in the days when I grew up, which was the 50s, was still quite geographically segregated, and the town that I lived in had a significant Black population that worked in the factories, but otherwise uh, didn't really mix with the white population. And so 
I had schoolmates that had much more difficult situations than I did. And so I think that sense of this is not the way it should be <laughs> started yeah. early. But that's also really impressive because as kids, I'm not so sure that most of us see that. I certainly didn't. And so I'm very impressed that you did as a child. And that also, by the way, carried through. So let's go back. So you started this for-profit and then decided to pivot to turn it into a nonprofit. When you all decided to do that, did you guys know what a nonprofit was? I mean, you're just like, oh, I'm just going to do it. But like, did you know? It, yes, because we'd done consulting for other nonprofits in developing community facilities. And also we partnered with nonprofits each time we did develop a housing development. And so, yeah, we knew what nonprofits were. And and to, to be fair, we didn't actually convert to a nonprofit. We opened a nonprofit. The existing for-profit stayed in existence, but all of the major part of the work move to the nonprofit. It's affordable housing is a strange beast. So in order to get funding to develop new properties, you have to have a partner who is experienced. So for a while, the for-profit was the partner of the nonprofit so that they could get the funding they needed to move forward. Then after about three developments, the nonprofit had enough experience points to move forward on its own. So there was this overlapping period of about four to five years. And then the nonprofit moved forward and the for-profit has been dormant for a long time. Got it. That makes sense. So I have to ask you this question and then we are in a new format for this season. So I have to keep track of that. But, you know, I have a lot of friends who are founders of nonprofits and uh, just having a really hard time getting it there. Like they've started it, they're doing some programs. They're not quite paying themselves yet. And maybe they've brought in one or two people on the board who aren't friends and family, right? But they're not there. So what advice can you give to these founders who are getting there? They can see it, but they're starting to lose faith. Ooh, that's a tough one. I've also been on boards of other nonprofits and seen some of this situation as well. Leadership is really important and leadership, not just at the top, but in the key positions that report to the leadership, that kind of talent is really important to be able to move forward in a strong way. So people, I think are key, really understanding how you can make enough money to survive as an organization and be able to pay talented people. That's key. You have to have that. Otherwise, you'll never really be able to be solid and sustainable. So that's what I would focus on. And having a really great development fundraising person makes a huge difference. So I, I think it's strong leadership, strong second in commands, understanding your business case and having a good fundraising professional. <laughs> I agree with you a thousand percent. But then, you know, like I said, my founder friends will say, great agreed. Couldn't agree with you even more. Yes, we should have the best staff in the world, but I don't have any money. So do you have some words of wisdom for how these founders can actually find those dollars to hire staff and by the way, pay themselves? Uh, yeah, I, I would say the, the most important thing is to develop, I, I call it the business case, but it's the case for investment. You need to develop a strong case for investment, test it out with your friends, test it out with your colleagues, and then go into the lion's den and ask for money. <laughs> and 
see what you get. If you can't raise money, you can't make your nonprofit keep going. So you really want to hone your story about why this is an important investment for your community and why what you're putting together is a, a real contribution to what funders care about. We all know we have to fundraise. It's just how you do that, right? Sometimes you get real lucky and you find that one donor, that one angel donor, and sometimes you don't. And at some point you have to know as a founder, and we're going to get into this in a second, but you have to know as a founder when it's time to say, this isn't working anymore. Maybe mm -hmm. I have another nonprofit take this over or mm -hmm. I just, I fold it. Yeah. It's not clear that it's valuable to have so many different nonprofits, each kind of reinventing the wheel, but you don't have to be the one that invents the wheel. You can even look at things like having a shared back office with other nonprofits or working under the financial umbrella of another nonprofit. And I think it's a really great idea for nonprofits founders to look at what else is out there and see if there's another organization that is simpatico and worth looking at a, a partnership or a merger or something, because you can often do more with more staff and more capability to handle those back office functions well than on your own. You don't have to do it on your own. We all live in community and that's what makes things work well is to make sure you're leveraging your community well. And I agree. And I think that the hardest part about being a founder is to say, Either it's time for me to step away or I can trust this person to run the show. There's a lot of things. And so what I'm going to do now, because we have this new format, is I'm going to pause on your story. We're going to come back to your story, but I want to get in a few questions. Okay. So I was a founder of two nonprofits and both of them, I walked away after a few years because I knew that I was standing in the way of growth, right? Like I had my own vision and I was standing in the way of growth. I also took over as an executive director of a homeless shelter where we had the founder still on the board. Wow. And he, was standing, he was standing in my way. And, you know, as a 26 year old, I was not going to take it. And I got him fired from the board, which oh. I, <laughs> you. I still kind of feel a little bit bad about it. But so here is our first question from a gentleman named Tom. And let me read, he's somewhere in the Midwest, didn't tell me where, and let me tell you his question. So Tom said, I am a newly hired executive director and the founder is not stepping out of my way. She is still on the board and still making my life miserable. I have not been here a year and it's getting very frustrating. I've got tons of new ideas and she is convincing the board not to let me do anything. Before I quit, is there anything I can do? <laughs> well, in that situation, what I think I would do is to meet individually with other board members and find out where they stand, find out if they're interested in new directions or find out if they're really not, because if they're on her side, he might as well leave. <laughs> but if there's a group of people on the board that really want to see new directions, then I think build on that. <laughs> and if there are, then it would be worth, I think, trying to sit down with the founding, if it's possible, and just talk with her and see what her 
anxieties and fears, but also hopes for the organization are and kind of pitch the ideas you'd like to do and ask her if she really doesn't want those things. That's what I would do. So here's the word politicking. I love a little like education 101 on this show. So you said, talk to the board, see if there's anybody else on there that is on, you know, that might not be on her side and see what you can do. That's politicking. And I think being an executive director is politicking. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe you can tell our friend what good politicking looks like. Well, so uh, first of all, I'm sure he's had a lot of time in front of the board. So getting a feel for whether there's somebody that seems to be, you know, a, a board influencer that's not the exact the, the founding director, somebody that people listen to, I would first try to go to people like that. But also you can usually tell who is maybe also feeling a little frustrated with the continuing tight control of the ex- executive director. So it's kind of assessing who your audience is. And start with somebody who you think is perhaps on your side, get them to help you figure out who are the people that I could pull over and who's an influencer who can bring others along. It's like community organizing. (laughs) There's so many things that are hard about being an executive director or founder, but I think the hardest part is the board because you've got however many people on that board, all with different opinions and all with different ideas, but they're passionate about the mission. And so when you combine passion with your own ideas and you're a volunteer, uh, you've definitely got to bring folks together. And it's not always easy. And usually there's one or two people on the board that make it really complicated. So yeah, so having a founder on the board who is standing in your way, for whatever reason, I agree with you. I think he should meet with her for lunch and or dinner or drink and have a conversation and really honestly, just be honest. What is it? Can we do this? Is it not going to work? Exactly. That and lobby other board members. (laughs) So let's go on to question number two. This one, Mary Jane, I love so much. Okay. I am a board member of an animal rescue. And we just found out that our founder is using our property for personal reasons. I won't get into it, but it's not legal. I think you take this issue to the audit committee or the finance committee, or maybe even the governance committee and let them know that this is going on. If necessary, suggest that you check with an attorney <laughs> to, to be sure that this is illegal. And then the board chair and possibly the chair of the audit or governance committee would sit down with the executive director and say, Uh, This is not acceptable. You're putting the organization at risk. Uh, The group should decide if it's egregious enough that he should be fired or just be asked to stop doing Mm. it. And and I think the board can make either of those decisions, depending on the value of that person, as well as the level of risk to the organization. I'll tell you what, you're a much better person than I am, because what I would say to the board member is, Maybe not a bad idea to tender your resignation and let somebody else deal with it. So you're a better person than I am. (laughs) So So we'll go back to the other questions later on in the show, but I want to get back to you. So you've started your nonprofit from your for-profit. You're one of the co-founders and then you step away. I gave a sneak peek of your story, but can you maybe talk about why you chose to step away and then ultimately what you did in all those years? 
if there was any connection and then what brought you back? So, yes, I was also on the board of another organization that I was also very committed to. And that organization had to let a, an executive director go. And so they asked me if I would consider stepping in. And it was something I cared a lot about. I felt the organization had not been going in the direction I wanted to see it go in. And so I agreed to step in, but I asked for uh, uh, about nine months to be able to leave the affordable housing organization so that I could make sure everything was set up and taken care of. And then I went to run that other organization. And so it was the opportunity to do something else I cared very much about. I did that, but I stayed on the board of works and continued to be involved with the affairs of the organization. But the person who was president remained effective president until about 2021. Hmm. And so then she faced some health issues and had to step back and was not able to do that work anymore. I had been on the board all that time. And so I came back to help the organization keep moving forward and to help the organization figure out what its succession plan was, what its next steps would be. And uh, that's where you all came in. <laughs> helping us look at the question, which was such an interesting exercise of whether we should merge with another nonprofit, which I still believe is a, a viable solution, or look for a new executive director. So there's so many follow-up questions that I have, but I want to now go back again to when you left. So, but you never left, you were a board member, but when you left, you know, being a co-founder and then staying on the board, but not being really in charge anymore, is hard because even though you were running this other nonprofit, which I'm sure is exhausting by itself, you're still on the board of this organization that you are no longer running, but you were a co-founder of. And I'm sure that there had to have been some decisions that maybe you were like, hmm, I don't know. So as a co-founder, how did you keep yourself not having founder syndrome? I think we were a fairly unusual organization in that we had the same board for about 17 years, all five of the same people. And we all very much trusted and were inspired by the my co-founder and the president of the organization and had a lot of faith in her instincts. She was a very committed and inspirational person. And so it wasn't so hard to trust her judgment. She did do things that I, I would never have undertaken. She was far more ambitious in many ways than I was <laughs> and quite a force. And, and it was a pleasure to get to watch her do what she did. So hmm. I, I wouldn't say it was difficult. I would say I was thrilled to be able to continue to be involved. First of all, it's lovely, like I said, because most I think most founders really do have founder syndrome and that is a real thing. And so the fact that you were able to even say, hey, she was more ambitious than I would be, but I was okay with that is, yeah. is a big deal because most founders don't do that. That gets me to our next question. And I do want to just go back to saying like nonprofit on the rocks means so many things, but one of it is actual nonprofits being on the rocks. And that's what these questions are. And so I really do appreciate people calling in, emailing in, DMing us. And so I'm hoping that people continue to do that. And so our next question for you is from another board member. 
So here's the question. I am a board member of a nonprofit and we are talking to our founder about succession planning, but he is not interested in leaving and has said that if we move forward, he will take all of our donors away and start a new nonprofit. We don't want him in charge, but we don't know what to do. Please help. Whoa, <laughs> that is a tough situation. It's so common, I think, for people to want to continue working until they drop dead and to feel like they know better than anybody else how this organization can be successful and work well. I honestly don't know what to do. I mean, if the whole board really feels that way, then they need to maybe think in terms of making sure that there's a strong bench, middle and senior management below the level of the chief executive so that they have a strong development director who has at least some ability to maintain relationships if should he leave. And I think funders are not unfamiliar with this situation. So they're not really all likely to just go with the founder. And then I think the board needs to consider whether they feel that the directions they'd like to move in are important for the community. And then when they tell the founder that it's time for him to step down and retire and perhaps offer him a position as senior consultant or something, whatever, then they need to begin to make a case to their funders and the larger community about what it is they're trying to do and why it was time to make this change. And I think the community will understand whatever they're seeing, I'm sure others are seeing as well. Yeah. That question is one of my favorites. And that is a lot of work because again, all the things that you've talked about, I think are really good answers and possibilities, but it does take time and it, it does take so much work. And yeah. so this is my question to you. And then I do have two other uh, call-ins, but my question to you is, you know, being a board member, you are not paid. You are a volunteer. Most of the time you have to both fundraise and write a check. And it's, it takes time and it takes energy. And you also do have, you take on liability. You know, if the organization gets sued, you're part of that, right? So there's a lot to it. And this question about all the work they're going to have to do so that they can finally ask their founder to leave, that's a lot. So how do you keep a board member invested? And how can a board member care that much that they are willing to spend that much time? You know, people are amazing. I, I don't know what your experience has been, but I've just been so uh, moved by the time and commitment, money sometimes, but time and commitment and passion that volunteers want to exercise. For many of them, this is their way to give back, especially if they're not working in nonprofits themselves, they're working in some other field. Um, and, and they care about it. They care about how the organization impacts the community. They're not sitting in their board seat just to be able to put it on their resume. They're sitting in their board seat because they care about the issue. Yeah. Um, but it's important, as you say, to be aware that it's going to take time and thoughtfulness and lots of conversations and phone calls and Zoom meetings. <laughs> Are you one of the amazing people out there looking for ways to channel your passions in service of the greater good? 
Or are you in an organization that is looking for passionate people to serve on your board of directors? If so, you should check out Cause Coaching, Envision Consulting's new subscription-based board recruiting and development tool. After years of working with more than a thousand nonprofit clients across the country, we've curated a series of board development resources elevate nonprofit boards at every stage of growth from recruitment to training. Services include personal coaching, live training, video and resource libraries, and Entree to Cause Cupid mixers, matching board members to organizations. Subscribe, learn, and be on your way to building a better board. Visit EnvisionNonprofit.com to find out more. I actually do think Zoom meetings make things a little bit easier because now you don't actually have to drive to the board meeting every day. Right? I agree. That does make it easier. But yeah, we wouldn't be able to be an industry. We wouldn't be able to represent what, like 15%, I think, of the GDP of the country. We would not be able to do it if it weren't for our board members. And it is a lot of work, but you're right. If you're passionate and you're willing to do it, you just got to remember that that's that higher purpose. Mm-hmm. So question number four, I think is, is a really difficult question. And we've been getting this a lot here. So, you know, you know, we do strategy and we do search and a lot of CEOs, executive directors are stepping down for this reason. And so the question is, this is from a founder. I am a white cis male who started a nonprofit serving primarily BIPOC youth. I am feeling like I should probably step down and have someone else run the organization who is BIPOC. What do you think? Absolutely. I agree. (laughs) I think this person needs to stay involved to provide mentoring and coaching and so on. But I think it makes such a huge difference to have somebody who has the experience of being a BIPOC person, growing up as a BIPOC person. And, and also for kids and others in the community to see the leadership of someone who is BIPOC. So I think that's absolutely right. And the person stepping down should definitely count on supporting that person for a period of time while they get their sales underway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really important. The, the nonprofit world has traditionally been white-led. Um, one of the organizations I worked with for a long time was Planned Parenthood. And they have been traditionally a white-led organization. Um, And it it took a long time for people to feel like the BIPOC people in the organization had enough experience to step up into leadership roles. But I I think that's the wrong attitude. You don't wait till somebody has the experience to be able to step into a leadership role. You cultivate that leadership. You cultivate that experience. You push to make that happen because it's really important. So... No, I agree. I think when we talk about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, we forget about the E and the I, and they are very important. And really making your entire team feel equal and investing in training and investing in your staff and moving them up the ranks and obviously paying them equitably, really important. And I think a lot of the times in nonprofits, we're busy and we're tired and it's a lot of work and we lose 
site that like not only are we serving our clients, but we also need to help our staff because the majority of time our staff are paid minimum wage and are one paycheck away from being homeless themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think that investment in our staff is really important. And I do think people forget about that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I know of a nonprofit here in LA. They, a few years ago, did a study to see what a living wage in LA was. And they made the commitment to pay everybody a living wage. At that time, it was something like 60000 a year. And so everybody in the organization, they squashed the, the salary range and they went for it. And I think that's an incredible, not only investment, but also message to your team that, yes, you should be able to live on what you're earning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And also it's really, I think a big deal to talk to funders because if you tell your funder, Hey, you know, I think the misconception is that we have to spend 90% of our dollars on programs and little in overhead, but overhead matters and overhead, by the way, is staff. And so for me, it's so important when you're out fundraising to say, by the way, we also want to pay our staff equitably. And if by the way, that's $60,000 then so be it. Yeah, exactly. Then you're living the values that say that every human being is important. Every human being's important ability to live well is important. And you have to practice that with your own staff. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So let's get back to you because I want to get back to you. And then I have one more question at the end. So now you're at that point where you've come back and you are serving as interim while you're running the organization and you're doing a search. And what you had talked about was talking about mergers and potentially merging with another organization. I think a lot of boards, their ego gets in the way of mergers and they get upset about maybe losing the name of the organization or whatever, something that doesn't matter. And so what advice can you give to our founders out there, but also to our board members out there about why mergers do make sense and maybe just maybe what kind of power they should be okay giving up. Oh, that's that's an interesting question. And and you're right. It's not just hard for board members. It's hard for staff as well sometimes to give up names and the set of values they believe they've put forward. So my view is that in the long run, you want the good work you've been doing to continue, to be sustainable. And what's really important is to look at Do you have the best opportunity to do that by merging with another organization that maybe has stronger staffing than you do or stronger back office than you do or better fundraising relationships that you do, but is aligned with your values? So I I don't think you can give up your values. I think that has to be something that you care about and you you don't want whatever you've learned to be and and whatever you've been able to evolve as an an amazing way to accomplish the results that you've been able to accomplish, you want that to be respected. And if you have great staff, you want that staff also to be able to move forward into the uh, organization that you're merging with. But yeah, the name and the control is not important as long as the values are aligned. (laughs) Yes, that's what you say. But, you know, we do a ton of mergers and I would tell you 70% of the time when they fall apart, it is because of something as simple as the name. And, and you're right. I don't, I don't understand that. I don't think it matters. It's more about the greater good, but that 
that really does sometimes blow up a, a merger. I'm sure. And people who have their own power and their own ambitions for their own organization don't necessarily want to work for somebody else. <laughs> I, I would think that the hardest one usually is the executive director doesn't want to give up control. Mm-hmm. You can't yep. agree on who's going to be the executive director <laughs> or how the board's going to be composed. <laughs> yeah, but that's also hard. I mean, that is hard. I've tried to work towards mergers or sharing of resources or shared back office and other settings as well. And it's it's a very hard thing to actually pull off. Mm-hmm. But I think it's smart. <laughs> I think it is smart. So I'm going to tell you something about myself that is a little bit embarrassing, but I finished my first cocktail. So now I'm, like I said earlier, I'm looser. So I went to UCLA and I came out at UCLA. So my mom wanted me to marry a Jewish woman. Once I came out, she said, that's fine, but you need to marry a Jewish man. So I started a nonprofit when I was at UCLA for Jewish gay youth. And it was, I mean, the honest truth is that I started it to find myself a boyfriend. Yeah, I know, I know. I I am nothing but honest, but it became a real nonprofit. Uh, It has a board of directors. It actually has a budget. It got a lot of money from foundations. Like it is a real nonprofit now. And it is not a dating service anymore. But when I started it, I came up with its name. And then I moved, by the way, I had a boyfriend, he was Jewish, so my mom was happy. And so I left because it was time for me to leave. And they changed the name. And not only did they change the name, but on the website, it doesn't mention my name anywhere. And, And I am the founder, right? So any time that I have a chance to say, hey, I am the founder of this organization, I do. By the way, it's called JQ International now. When I started it, it was called 11th Commandment because we were the 11th Commandment, right? So my question to you is, should I be embarrassed that I want my name associated with this organization that I started? And it's nowhere. You should not be embarrassed. I think it's very stupid of organizations not to celebrate their founders because (laughs) I don't know what your attitude toward the organization is now, but... When I was running organizations, some of the best donors we ever had were the founders and the people who served on the board before and the original donors. And it was really important to keep them involved and keep their networks involved. They were great advocates for the organization. So uh, for for no other reason than the selfish reason of keeping support, if I were running that organization, I would definitely put your name on the website. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for validating me. So my last question that we got, which I think is a really great question to end, is is this. I am a founder of a nonprofit. I've been running this place for 15 years, and I'm out of ideas. I'm not closed to new ideas. I'm just out of ideas. What I'd like to know from you is when is it okay to step away? It's okay to step away when you're not the right person to run it anymore. And I think that person has reached that point. And you have to think of it as an opportunity for somebody else who does have ideas and new energy to come in and take the organization farther. So I think the time is now. Just stay there long enough to make a good transition (laughs) and help launch the next person. Yeah, Yeah, do it now. (laughs) 
Founders are phenomenal. If it weren't for founders, we wouldn't have any nonprofit. That's a that's a given. And those nonprofits who are successful are, you know, that founder has just got, I think a lot of the times gets lucky, um, meets that one person, gets one board member, whatever it is. And then you said it yourself, the majority of nonprofits in this country are under a $100,000 budget. Majority. We know about the big ones, but the vast majority of nonprofits are that small. And so I think a lot of people, a lot of founders just want to know when they should walk away. So forget about I'm out of ideas or I'm tired, none of that. But there is really something called founder syndrome. So if you are a founder and you are honest about founder syndrome, when should a founder look in the mirror and say, you know what, it is time for me to step away? The image that's in my mind is of a wonderful painting I once saw in somebody's office. And it was a painting of somebody rising off the ground and kind of looking into the atmosphere. And so to me, what that symbolized is that person is looking in other directions and in, in their heart, in their soul, they're looking in other directions. They don't anymore have the juice or the spit to be focusing really their heart and their soul on this. And I think as soon as that's happening to you, as soon as you're starting to dream of the other things you could be doing or just not able to bring your whole self to something anymore, it's time for you to step away and time to start planning for the succession. We all, especially founders, often don't think about succession. And it's really important. I think succession properly done takes four to five years of planning. And so, you know, you want to have it set up so that when you start looking off into the sunset, you can go. You, you've got everything set up. You and your heart know if you're totally focused on this thing and have the energy to, to continue to pour yourself into it. What about that founder that just can't get out of their way? That true founder syndrome, right? Like they're not open to new ideas. They're just going to step in front of any kind of new ideas because they have this control issue. They're not going to walk away. They have to be forced to walk away. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the board's job. So is there anything, any words of wisdom or advice you can give that person? Life has so many other opportunities. <laughs> so let yourself imagine what you would be doing with your time if you weren't doing this every minute of every day. And if you gave up control, how good you might feel about not having to feel like you had to be in control of this all the time. You know what? No, I like that. I like that a lot. I think that's great. I wish that they would hear that and believe that, but that always is not the case, but I love the idea. Tell their kids to tell them it's time to go. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to hire your next executive director at Works. Your job is going to be done. What is next for you? Well, for one thing, I have eight grandchildren, so I want to spend a lot more time playing with my grandchildren, ranging in age from three to 24, and, and I want to travel. And then after I've done that for a year and a half or two years, then I don't know, I might study something. My brother who is two years younger than me, he's 71. He just got his PhD in geophysics. Isn't that amazing? You're going to tell me you're going to start another nonprofit and I'm going to be like, oh, come, no. come on. No, 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 I'm not. I'm, I, I, I will serve on boards maybe, but I'm not starting anything. It's time for people your age to be 
taking them over and people 20 years younger than you to be starting them. <laughs> yep. That's what I was going to say. It's time for people 20, 30 years younger than me to start them. Well, yeah. I am so, so thankful for your time, for your advice, also for what you've done. We would not have anything that we have if it weren't for nonprofits, if it weren't for founders like you. And so I thank you. And I am so thankful for hopefully the answers that you gave to the folks who called in, who emailed in, who DM'd in. And I certainly hope that if they're listening, that they listen to your advice and make some changes. Well, I don't I don't know about my advice, but I really encourage everybody to do what gives them real pleasure and meaning in their lives. And I'm so thrilled that you started, what was it called? Now it's JQ International, but it used to be called the 11th Commandment. That's right. They should definitely put your name on that website. Um, yeah, I'm advocating for that right now. I agree. You know what, though? I started a nonprofit that every semester brought together 10 Jewish girls and 10 Muslim girls from two different schools across the country. And they would come together over the semester and they would learn from each other and hang out with each other and raise money with each other to put on a fundraising event that would support um, families living in poverty and homeless families. And it was wow. awesome. And that was actually something that I loved the most. And unfortunately, um, when I moved, did not continue. Oh. My favorites. What a great idea, though. Keep suggesting it to other people to restart something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I loved everything about it. It was so cool too, because I remember like the, some of the girls were like, oh, I've never met somebody Muslim. I've never met somebody Jewish. I had no idea what Shabbat means. And it was so cool. And all it took was myself and my co-founder, Amal, to just start this idea. And it was great. Uh, I, I hope somebody does something similar. Um, Shana Tova to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being a guest on our first show of season five. I hope that I know that this is going to be great and we're going to continue. And my last question to you before I let you go is for our next episode, what should be the topic? What should be the theme? Well, I think it's a really interesting question to talk about what somebody in the like uh, workforce should do to develop themselves to become an executive director or a leader. Um, I, I think there are a lot of people out there who have that ambition, but have no idea how to go about it. Hmm. I think it's a really interesting thing to explore. Anyway. I love that. So, so how to become an executive director. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Well, with that, Mary Jane, I really appreciate you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything you've done. And thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's been fun. <laughs> Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So what do you think of this amazing first podcast of season five? I think you picked a winner with Mary Jane as your first episode. Like I said earlier, she is awesome. She is on par in my mind with Dolly Parton and Taylor Swift and all the great women who have done so much to pave the way for women and for advocacy. And with our new format of getting questions from our listener, which by the way, let me tell you, that listener, like such great questions, right? What do you think about that format? Because my biggest concern is that as we keep doing this and as we keep asking for questions from that listener, we know she's just going to get tired. So like, what are we going to do about that? 
It's true. I mean, I think we did tax our one listener to write lots of different questions in different pseudonyms. But truly, though, I love the format. And I'm telling you at the same time as I'm telling our listener that I love the way you interspersed the questions from the audience with conversations about our guest. Because I think that's just a great way to keep things fresh, right? Like we all want to hear about the guest and who they are and what they're doing out there. But also we want to be able to answer everyone who's listening, the questions that they have about their own experiences and hear the guest and you speak to those issues. So I just, I found it really kept me captivated through the whole episode and and I hope it did so for our audience. Now, did you like the fact that I started my first nonprofit to find a Jewish boyfriend? (laughs) That was one of the better revelations. You have never told me that before. It is a phenomenal reason to start a nonprofit. I've heard of people going to great lengths to find that somebody. It's the first time I've heard of someone starting a nonprofit to find somebody. But as far as I know, it may not have led you to Mr. Right, but it led you to Mr. Right now at some point. So let's throw it back to you. Was it worth it? It led me to many Mr. Right Nows, and I will <laughs> that that was worth it for me. For whatever reason why people want to start a nonprofit, that's fine. At the end of the day, it's really all about the greater good. And so as long as we know that we are doing good, you know, and we can kind of figure out how to make it work, that's really all that matters. And, and I think that that also leads us into next week's show, which is going to be about executive directors and when is the right time to step down? When is the right time as an executive director to say, I've done everything that I can do here and I'm moving on? And I think that's something that you come across, obviously, a ton in your work, both in the search portion of it, obviously, because you're filling the the space left by people who have decided to leave, but also in your strategy work, when you're dealing with people who maybe have reached the end of their tenure, and maybe they don't quite know it, or maybe they're struggling with that decision. Yeah. So next show is going to be a panel, and it is going to be about how these folks became executive directors, because I still think that's relevant. But yeah, how do you decide when it's time for you to step down? How do you talk about succession planning and strategy? And so that's what we're going to talk about. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So anybody out there who has any questions, if you are an executive director right now, and you're thinking about maybe what that next step is for you, now's the time to ask us those questions. And for people who are thinking of moving on to something else, let's not forget, you can always hire Envision Consulting to help you with that next step. There's always jobs that are open that Envision is looking to fill, and we got to find great people to fill those jobs. So if you're in transition and you haven't found the next thing or you're looking for the next thing, do look us up at EnvisionNonprofit.com. And if you have questions, like maybe you're someone who's in that position, you're considering moving, or maybe you have a story about your own experience or or that of someone you know who has gone through the transition, we want to hear those stories. We're looking for questions and we're looking for stories that will set us up for great discussion here on this podcast. So you can find me at ashley at envisionnonprofit.com or you can message me on Instagram at nonprofit underscore on underscore the underscore rocks. Great. And is there anything else that you would like to leave with our listener before we let them go and wait just on the edge 
for our next show. I will just reiterate your sentiment, Matt, that there are no wrong reasons to start a nonprofit as long as that nonprofit is out there doing good. Well, on that note, Ashley, thank you so much for making this episode as enjoyable as I think it was. And I will see you on our next intro.